Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. A number of my friends, when we were younger and listening to music, were struck by the number of times hip-hop artists referenced a particular year. And uh, at the time, our infinite knowledge as teenagers, we spent uh, time criticizing the artist because it uh, took their outstanding songs and limited them to the time period that they were referencing. I think about that now in light of starting off this particular podcast because I'm going to reference additional topics that certainly, while timely, potentially date the episode, but I don't think it makes it any less um, timely. It simply provides a time stamp. We have had additional references to racial violence in Oklahoma, in Jacksonville, Florida, in the most recent weeks. And as I reflect on releasing another podcast episode and knowing that those are urgent topics that have to be discussed in a meaningful way and will be discussed in a meaningful way, the important is spending time discussing ongoing threats to the health of our communities. And so while certainly acknowledging that we continue to live in a a very difficult time and a racially polarized time, the simple fact is that that cannot stop the work that uh, is intended through this podcast, but also that is intended um, via our this week's guest. When we're spending time discussing social determinants of health, I encourage listeners, do not think of these as abstractions, but concrete ways that those of us who are physicians, nurse practitioners, and nurses, but also ways that those who touch and are involved with patient care through whatever their specific mechanism is, can be involved in improving existing conditions. So I hope you enjoy this particular episode. Dr. Pendial is uh, an amazing speaker who's done an incredible amount of work uh, specifically with social determinants of health involved with uh, patients who have significant heart problems. I enjoyed our conversation. I've enjoyed what he's read. I am ecstatic to have somebody who is an author in this subject and take to heart much of what he says and our opportunities to make a difference in the lives of patients, our family members, our community. Welcome back to Crossing the Chasm, our DEI, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion podcast focused on healthcare. And I am very excited to be joined by Dr. Akshay Penyal. I hope I pronounced your last name properly because I hate when I mispronounce names. And so if you correct me, I'm going to get, I'll get over it relatively quickly. Um, uh, Akshay earned his undergraduate degree in English literature with a concentration in creative prose from the University of Pennsylvania and completed medical school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He completed his internal medicine residency at the University of Colorado and then has completed a cardiology fellowship where he uh, also served as chief fellow at Oregon Health and Sciences University. Uh, He has a tremendous focus and is a published author around interactions between racial and economic inequity in health. Uh, And he is also a Yale uh, postdoctoral fellow. Um, Super happy to have you here, uh, Akshay, and welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. 
So we always kick it off by letting people tell their stories. How'd you end up here and how'd you end up focusing on what you're focusing on? Um, yeah, so I am a cardiologist by training, but I will say the path I took here has sort of been um, kind of a winding one. I'm from North Carolina originally, um, and actually out of medical school, I was very interested in, of all things, radiology, which in some ways is um, kind of partitioned off from the clinical care, the seeing patients that you and I are very accustomed to. I was really drawn, I think, to like radiology's um, applications of technology and sort of, uh, you know, imaging and the clinical decision making that surrounded it. But when I was a radiology resident, I, I did a year of radiology residency actually in New York City. Um, this was kind of an interesting time in my life. And it was an interesting time, I think, almost in the contemporary history, you know, um, of our country in the sense that it was at the height of stop and frisk, um, which was a, a policy enacted by NYPD that, you know, as they, I think we all know now at this point, was disproportionately, it seemed, targeting communities that were already quite vulnerable. And so I have these memories of like returning to my small, <laughs> way too expensive apartment, like on the Upper East Side, you know, or like walking to um, the, the supermarket and sort of seeing, you know, just what seemed to be kids. They couldn't have been older than, you know, 16, 17, sort of being indiscriminately stopped in the city for really no apparent reason. And I remember being very struck by that. This was also the time when um, Trayvon Martin was killed, uh, you know, for also very seemingly um, no reason at all, uh, just sort of walking. Um, and there was this huge sort of swell of protests that erupted around that. You may recall, and, you know, as I was living in New York City, one of the biggest demonstrations happened in, uh, in Union Square down on 14th Street, like in Manhattan. And I remember getting off work, I was working at Bellevue Hospital and sort of riding my bike over to Union Square. And there were just so many people there, you know, chanting, say his name, they had signs. This was the very, very earliest intimations of what we might now call the movement for Black Lives or Black Lives Matter. Um, but that sparked something in me. And it really seemed like, you know, from that point forward, not to sort of ascribe more importance to it than, you know, than might have truly been there. But it was a catalyst in the sense that it didn't feel like in, in good faith or in good conscience, I could sort of continue on in my path as a doctor, sort of simply sitting behind a computer screen, so to speak, you know, um, not to say there's not value in over MRI images or CT images, but for me... It didn't feel consequential enough. It didn't feel like it was tangible enough or even materially related in any way to what I felt like were the broader social currents that were kind of capturing the nation at large. And so I switched back to internal medicine. I did my residency. I did my fellowship. And I would say throughout that time, I was also becoming just a more politically aware person, um, a more historically aware person. And I think one thing that we, you know, have as physicians, as doctors that sort of see patients is you are just exposed to a much broader swath of humanity, I think, than people in many other professions, you know? I mean, I can think of a few, you know, public sector workers, um, people that work in the service industry, care work of many kinds. I would include medicine in that category. You're sort of exposed to um, just sort of the raw edges of humanity, to kind of borrow a phrase. And, I, and that, to me, was also kind of a catalyst, um, just sort of seeing what inequity in its various manifestations and its various forms looked like. And so then that prompted me to, after I finished my clinical training as a cardiologist, pursue this sort of additional training and research and health policy through uh, what's called the Yale Clinical Scholars Program. It used to be called the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program. And that's where I really cultivated my current interests, which are in things like housing and other forms of material insecurity as they relate to cardiovascular health in particular. I hope that wasn't too long-winded of an answer, but 
Not even close. Uh, we, <laughs> we, love, we love the details because the details really uh, help to describe things. So uh, get, delve more deeply into that. I've, I've had a chance to dig into some of the articles that you've written, but, um, you know, let's talk about housing and cardiovascular disease because I don't think most people actually connect those dots. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I, I often get the question, you know, like, how did you even settle on housing instability or homelessness as an interest? I, I would venture to say you're correct, which is to say that most cardiologists or perhaps even most physicians don't necessarily make that direct causal link or, um, you know, establish that relationship between housing insecurity and, and health. But Honestly, I see it every day in my patients. You know, if you think about something like heart failure, um, which is a super common condition, upwards of 6 million people in the United States have congestive heart failure. That number is only going to go up as our population ages, as the prevalence of comorbid conditions like high blood pressure increase. It is a disease of intensive self-management. You know, I think you know as well as I do, the sorts of things that we ask our patients to do in the treatment of congestive heart failure, whether it's adhering to a certain medication regimen, certain diet regimen, health behaviors like you know, weighing oneself daily, not to mention sort of the frequent doctor's visits, lab testing, diagnostic tests. It's a lot for anyone. Um, and I think when you add on top of that sort of the challenge of housing instability, which I would define broadly, you know, it, I think when people think of housing instability, they think of homelessness, which is perhaps the starkest manifestation of it. Very reasonably so. I think upwards of, you know, half a million people on any given night in the United States are what we might call truly homeless, which is to say they are living, spending time in places that are largely unfit for human habitation or temporary residences like shelter uh, or in the shelter system. But that number alone is obviously an undercount. But even beyond that, when you sort of expand it to think about housing insecurity, which is to say things like even something as simple as a rent burden right. is more than 30%, more than 50% of your income going towards rent, that number balloons. It's millions and millions of people. If you think about the centrality that housing place, uh, pl plays or the, the position it occupies, I should say, within our day-to-day -day life, you know, social scientists call housing sort of the linchpin of, you know, everyday human interaction. From a material sense, both in terms of having a roof above your head, but also sort of in a, uh, a non-material, almost a metaphysical sense, like the sort of security there's this phrase I like called ontological security, which is the security that arises from having stability, a routine. And then you think, you know, what must that be like for someone who is faced with what truly is um, uh, perhaps the most deep de destabilizing condition any of us may ever face, which is that of having a chronic disease? What do those things look like? How does that manifest? And that's how I became sort of interested in, you know, the experience of what it might be like to be a patient with a chronic disease that is exceedingly common while also facing this true metaphysical insult of not having a stable place to live. And that coupled with my interests in sort of narrative medicine and the humanities led me to want to study this qualitatively, actually, because I am more than anything else, I think, interested in stories. Um, and I think, especially when it comes to something like this, there might be a difference or at least a, a limit to what stream of quantitative data or sort of modeling in a quantitative sense can tell us. And so that's what drew me to my, my main project when I was a postdoc at Yale is, is that kind of motivation. And that's where I, you know, I conducted these in-depth interviews, hour or two hours with folks who were either homeless at the time or had previously experienced homelessness, who also had a diagnosis of congestive heart failure. You know, I would meet them like in the park, I'd meet them at the public library in New Haven. I'd meet them at the shelter and we would just talk and I would record these interviews and try and get a sense of what their lives were like. And that formed the foundation for my, my project as a scholar. And it's something I often go back to. I mean, it informs my day-to-day -day care now, even though I no longer practice in New Haven, 
even though my patient population is in many ways, you know, systematically different in some ways, at least from the one I was taking care of in, in Connecticut, it still informs my day-to-day care. It informs my approach to medicine, my philosophy on medicine. So that experience alone was very formative. I, I, I can only imagine you're, uh, you're tying things together, and I know you're, you're right. I'm sitting down and re- recounting the, you're right, I mean, as a hospitalist, heart failure is like, you know, one's on your census, you know, there's a patient on your census with heart failure every single day. Um, and without really applying sort of a framework for, oh, I need to understand what's going on um, with you, you're right. You're writing prescriptions, you're making assumptions about what care can be done, and knowing that, particularly now having a, the macro picture, like knowing you could be setting somebody up for a failed discharge almost immediately, like they walk out the door going, I have no idea what's the, what's going on, I have no way to, I have no way to get home, I don't even know what that home is, you asked me to do all of these uh, various things, and then having, you know, trained my, again, myself in a, an internal medicine residency in, in, in New Orleans and remembering the patients that were in there and looking at me going, what do you mean low salt? The thing cost, the, the Cheetos cost 99 cents. I can afford that. I can't afford the $2 salad that you keep telling me I need to eat. So, um, you know, those, those are all incredibly real. I don't know if you want to share one of the stories. You said that it's informing your care now. For the entire audience, what does that mean? Like, what what are things that you're doing differently? I, I, again, I know what you've written in papers, but what are how are you applying things differently to be able to address um, this particular? I, I, I don't. The term social determinant of care is important because it helps to codify things for other people, but it's these are real real components of people's lives. But, but tell me, how does it inform your care? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for me, especially when I'm taking care of folks with a chronic cardiovascular condition like heart failure, who are also living in the midst of housing instability. But I mean, even that, I've taken on a more expansive notion, any form of material insecurity, you know, whether it's living on a limited fixed income, like through social security disability, that is necessarily, I think, going to constrain the choices and the sort of choice set that someone has. So one big thing I do, and this may be of particular interest to the sort of physicians who are listening to this, which is to say, you know, simplifying medication regimens as often as I can. And that can be as something as simple as, you know, using once daily beta blocker dosing versus twice daily, you know, um, allowing patients themselves to sort of titrate diuretics, um, especially for homeless patients who don't have reliable access to like a public restroom. Um, you know, empowering them to like recognize heart failure symptomatology and then titrate diuretics um, or, you know, water pills as they're so often called based on how they feel. Um, Really minimizing what I think is, (laughs) you probably agree, a fairly egregious problem within American medicine writ large, which is just superfluous and excessive testing. Um, So, you know, thinking about thinking judiciously and carefully about, hey, what kind of test might this patient need? How might it change the arc of their care so as to minimize a doctor or a lab or a diagnostic visit that might necessitate them, you know, three bus trips, two transfers, you know, like just sort of minimizing that burden. In general, and I was mentioning this earlier, you know, I think about my own philosophy of medicine and Yeah, you know, that too has changed, I think, over the years, which is to say, I think we all went into this in some ways because we wanted to treat disease, heal the sick in the most dramatic form, you know, save lives, help people in a true crisis, an hour of need. I think that's all still true, but I often at times now see my role in some way as almost protecting patients from um, what might be construed as the harms of the medical system, this term that Ivan Illich coined, you know, iatrogenesis, the harms that we inflict on patients. And so whether that is in the form of medications that folks perhaps don't really need that might be of marginal marginal benefit, even if they have, you know, um, data and multi-billion dollar marketing campaigns behind them, how might that truly impact 
life of the patient that's, you know, sitting in front right. of me, especially when they're dealing with something like struggling to pay rent, put food on the table, that sort of thing. But also, I think, you know, it translates to the way you might go about ordering tests, referring to specialists and, you know, uh, that sort of thing. It, you have to sort of treat the patient holistically and think of them as like a active participant in their own care. And often I find that translates as thinking, gosh, you know, maybe we should be doing a little bit less. Um, because for this person, you know, there's this, this quote that I like, uh, you know, uh, by this writer, Anatoly Broyard. He says, you know, for me, you know, for, for the doctor, um, uh, my illness is just a routine occurrence in their everyday rounds. But for me, it's the crisis of my life. And I think that's very true for many patients. But compounded onto that, there are multiple crises. There are manifold crises of poverty, housing instability, food insecurity, you know, psychosocial trauma, structural barriers. And so just being cognizant of these multiple crises, I think, rather than honing in on the biomedical one, which is what we're trained to do, I think, right. um, that's, I think, reflected a sort of evolution in my thinking. What I appreciated the most was the opportunity to to that you and, and your co-authors really focused on with respect to either as the individual uh, clinician, physician, advanced practitioner, nurse, as well as the health system, do this one particular step, right? You address polypharmacy, which we know, you say it with heart failure, and I was, you know, having palpitations of thinking about the discharge summary and the medication summary that we hand to patients when they're, when they're uh, being discharged from the hospital and the fact that it's usually a stack this big. Um, it's making assumptions about the patient's actual literacy, um, forget health literacy and, and all of these other things. And so I, I really appreciated your taking that and really being focused on those various areas because I know when I was first thinking about this and you're like, again, how am I as a cardiologist fixing a housing problem? Well, you're not, and you're coming up with things that you can do to address their primary concerns and where they are most unstable, which first requires you to ask, which is a big deal for us, because you're right, we typically focus on the biomedical piece and hope somebody else in the system actually takes it over. That's right, yeah, and I think, you know, that is a response that I think at this point I've sort of been accustomed to getting, which is some version of like, well, what do you expect me to do about it, which on the one hand makes sense, you know, Housing instability uh, and homelessness are systemic problems. You know, they have sort of structural economic causes. I don't think anyone is doubting that. Housing unaffordability. Um, I mean, you could even go bigger and just say, you know, stagnant wages since the 1970s. Uh, you know, I mean, the long, long history of segregation and disenfranchisement, the concurrent crises of substance use disorder and, you know, <laughs> mental illness among patients that are homeless. I mean, there's so many different, you know, uh, sort of thorny aspects of this gigantic problem, which I still think, you know, fundamentally has an economic base, which is to say the way we treat housing in this country, increasingly a sort of a speculative asset rather than something in which people can achieve the sort of material security that I'm talking about, a place to live. Yes, no cardiologist, no practicing physician, no one person is going to be able to like tackle that systemic problem. I don't think anyone is saying that. But we are, you know, tasked with trying to make people feel better and in some small way attempting to alleviate suffering. And if that's what we're trying to do, that to me is a much more immediate task, something that we can do. And that's where simplifying medication regimens talking to patients about what makes it hard for you to take your medications or make these appointments, using non-stigmatizing language, which, you know, like, again, seems so easy. It seems like such low-hanging fruit. This is something that I think they've researched a lot in kind of the addiction space. Um, but, you know, language in all of its forms makes the world legible, you know, and in some sense, it creates our social world. Um, because of our linguistic ability, like we have the ability to create our social world. 
I don't mean that in some glib way where it's like, oh, you have to sort of constantly police your language, you know, lest you get canceled or something. I actually mean it in almost like a philosophical way, which is to say, insofar as language shapes ideas, you know, and ideas are intrinsically related to thought, which is then related to action, the way you talk about things matters. And so if only to get cardiologists and other physicians to think about these larger structural economic causes and um, systemic problems, changing the way we talk about them, I think, is an important first step. And I'm not no, talking, you know, again, about kind of sort of facile things of like referring people to houseless as opposed to homeless. I, I think that's not even what I'm talking about. I'm talking about treating people with dignity, you know, which is sort of the fundamental thing here um, is if you in some way, you know, subscribe to the notion that as human beings, we are all worthy of like dignity. Um, and there is a certain debt we owe to each other in like a kind of Kantian philosophical sense that the way that shows up is how you talk to people and how you relate to people. So to me, that's my immediate reflection when you said that is it really is pretty basic, not only in the terms of the, hi, I'm a physician, I should be respecting you and, and treating you well, but the, the bottom line is our first oath is to do no harm. And theoretically, we can do a lot of harm with the words that we're utilizing with our patients. And so if we're taking it from that framework, you're 100% right. Like, I have to be thoughtful um, in, in so many different ways. It, you've, you've, there's so many different questions to take, um, and, and you've obviously highlighted one particular area um, uh, on this, but you've also written uh, extensively about um, discussing uh, and physicians caring about structural racism. Um, yeah, uh, if I, I hope you know everything that you wrote, and I spent a fair amount of time trying to, to figure out what you found, but it was a Kevin MD um, a blog post that you had made um, on it, and, and for our listeners who may not have read it, why? I mean, we you discussed why housing and, and why cardiovascular disease, but again, from your, your perspective and your in your philosophy of medicine, why do you think that's important? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I wrote that piece um, on Kevin MD back in 2018, and that was, you know, that year marked the sort of 50th anniversary of the passage of the Fair Housing Act, which was part of sort of the overall civil rights legislation in the 1960s. Um, it was also during, you know, the Trump administration when, you know, Ben Carson, who is a physician, coincidentally, uh, you know, was the secretary of housing and urban development in the Trump administration was, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric about sort of um, the things one might expect about personal responsibility and sort of, you know, um, certain populations or subpopulations kind of, you know, living off the dole and, you know, we needed to empower people. And, you know, uh, a large part of that was sort of cutting necessary services. And that just got me thinking about how we think about, you know, housing, which historically has obviously been very racialized in this country. And that's what compelled me to write that piece. Um, you know, I think the term structural racism uh, now is being very increasingly, I think you you even see it in like mainstream mainstream discourse at the time. You know, this was like five years ago, so I I'm not even sure it was as mainstream then, even though it wasn't that long ago. Um, I do feel like I see it more even in sort of academic uh, and lay writing uh, now. But you know, in its simplest form, it just refers to this idea. The the term I think was first sort of propagated or, or put forth by Stokely Carmichael back in the '60s. But you know, it just refers to this idea that you know, seemingly kind of neutral policies or um, neutral processes can nevertheless have racially disparate outcomes, irrespective of racial animus on the part of any one individual. You know, it doesn't take like a virulent individual racist, like a Bull Connor type to like, for this this process um, or these outcomes to to materialize, um, it, it, it occurs independently of that, and that's due to the fact that the background conditions under which these policies, which are seemingly neutral, are enacted, are uneven to begin with. It's kind of a simple concept, but I think it's one that you know people sort of need to think a bit more carefully about. And so that was something that you know prompted me to write that 
piece. I will say, you know, perhaps a consequence or maybe a related phenomenon to that phrase, structural racism or systemic racism or institutional racism becoming more widespread is I think it has caused people to sort of think less clearly about it and maybe result in some kind of analytical kind of slippage or conceptual confusion about it. And so in my kind of academic work now, interestingly enough, I kind of use it less, not because I think that, you know, racially disparate outcomes are any less important, but I think that it, in, in some ways it detracts from a more central cohesive message, which is like, look, we need to focus on material conditions for people, such as things like housing, a living wage, you know, like putting food on the table, access to higher education if one needs that. Basically a life of dignity, you know, that um, is enabled by sort of material security. Um, right. So, yeah, I'm not sure if that answered your question correctly, but that, if I think back to 2018, that was my initial motivation for writing that piece, and that's how my thoughts have kind of evolved since then. Well, I no, you, you did, your answer is just fine, and um, it's great, and I think, and it's, I appreciate that you're in the perspective on it, because I agree with you, um, the terminology has absolutely increased in terms of frequency. I also agree with you that with that has been a concomitant, aggressive pushback on, well, we can't do this, and, um, uh, you know, that this, this can't be, or people absorbing it and taking and very much personalizing it. Well, wait, I'm part of the system, therefore I'm racist. And, and you know, to your point, right, it doesn't take an individual. It is structurally things built and, and what we're, um, what many folks are doing and certainly part of what uh, the, the purpose that, that we put together this podcast was really to say, yeah, these things exist. That doesn't, it's not pointing the finger at you. It just means, hey, we should probably do something to fix it. Um, and we've been uh, really much focused on um, interventions uh, rather than, uh, as I always quote it um, from a, uh, an old acquaintance of mine, admiring the problem uh, excessively, which we, we like to do a lot. Um, I'm going to pause because I intended this to be much more of a dialogue. And then I started like, I, I felt like a, a an attending. I started pimping you like, hey, what about this? And you wrote about this five years ago. Uh, <laughs> and so um, what questions do you have for me? We have an Ask Greg section and I'll just sit back and, and listen. Yeah, I wonder, you've probably addressed this on prior podcasts, um, but I'm curious about your own journey in the sense of, you know, uh, how you got into sort of this space. Um, and then even in your role now at Sound Physicians, how some of these issues we've been talking about, um, how they're coming up and how you all are attempting to tackle them uh, as a group, I guess. Yeah, I, uh, the abbreviated version uh, is, um, I. It, I was raised in a medical household. My father um, was a physician. Uh, he was the first board certified family physician in Austin, Texas. Um, and, you know, and I, you know, you're a little kid, you only understand what you're like, my dad's a doctor. Okay, I have some vague concept of what that means. Um, and, but then watching how people treated him, and I was like, well, why, like, why are you a big deal? I don't understand why you're a big deal. But then listening to his patients and spending time in the clinic and hearing, you know, we had to travel all the way across town to get a doctor. We didn't have healthcare in our community until he showed up. Um, you know, we had a dentist and a pharmacist. We didn't have a family doctor. We didn't have primary care. Um, and as obviously I grew up and, and better conceptualized what happened, um, you know, and what that means in terms of access to healthcare, um, that, that um, absolutely formulated my dis decision to enter medicine um, and really focus on underserved populations. Fast forward to what um, what's in sound, you know, hospital medicine is um, at times vilified because it's fr further fragmentation of <laughs> our existing healthcare system, but at the same time, acknowledging that we, you know, A, we take care of a, a super elderly population, average age of our patients 77 in our practice is 77 years old, um, better than one and a half. Uh, 
you know, the, the likelihood that we're going to interact with a patient of color is in much higher than it is in a typical um, uh, primary care community, primarily because one, you know, unequal treatments told us years ago, um, black and brown patients are one and a half to two times more likely to receive their care from a hospital-based provider. Um, so they're either seeing the emergency doc, the emergency doc send us patients. And so um, for me, hospital medicine fit a nice niche from a practice perspective. And fast forward again to my my existing role as, as CEO of the practice and, and um, chief diversity officer. It was recognizing that a we because we take care of such a you know it's a large practice we have immense pools of data um, that we can identify not only what our existing profile is and performance you know we measure everything as it stands why aren't we measuring it in this particular way you know evaluating our outcomes based on race we were disappointed to find out that we look like everybody else Shouldn't be surprised, but we were still disappointed. And then, you know, in partnership and looking at the entire collaborative, it became what can we do? So similar to your article, we identified seven uh, social determinants of health, and our focus was those have to be done consistently in a multidisciplinary setting to ensure that we were asking the questions and then making sure they were answered before patients discharge, were discharged. And it's for us, it, you know, this is you know, as part of the organization's journey in, in, in terms of saying like diversity, equity, inclusion, it's, it's just, it should come second nature to us as a, a medical group, and it should come second nature, particularly for a hospital medicine group. And so, um, yeah, we can focus on health equity. We can also focus on uh, evaluating our clinical workforce. We can also make sure that we're creating an inclusive environment where we're involving, you again stated it, how do we involve our patients in their care? How do they, how do we continue to build trust in our communities for um, uh, historically disenfranchised communities that don't trust the healthcare system? And so, you know, as opposed to being trapped in the walls of the hospital, how do we broaden our impact? Um, and if we, you know, and, and so that's that's where we are and that's what we aspire to do. I, I say aspire because we're doing a fair amount, but uh, I, and my partner Jay here knows I'm, I'm constantly pushing us to do more because there's more for us to do. So, what's the uh, what's the buy-in been like? I mean, among the hospitalists themselves, I work with a lot of hospitalists, as you can imagine. I mean, y'all are super busy. I am constantly kind of you know uh, amazed at the workload um, that our hospitalists have to carry, and I often, I mean, I feel for all physicians, but hospitalists especially, in terms of just administrative burdens, adding you know. Uh, layers upon layers of non-clinical work to what is already a pretty um, onerous, uh, at times, job. Clearly, these issues are important, but I'm curious. You strike me as a guy that, if anyone could achieve this sort of shared buy-in among a group of hospitalists, it seems like it would be a guy like you or your organization, but I'm curious how it's gone. Well, I, I, I think it's gone for, interestingly enough, for our people, it's relatively straightforward because what but our primary objective was to say, look, trying to do some brand spanking new initiative what, like, was literally adding another brick in the backpack and everybody going, oh, no, like, I, I, I literally can't do one more thing. Um, and we've had a pretty concentrated effort on clinician well-being, um, you know, and, and there was an article that came out in the um, Journal of Hospital Medicine discussing the fact that hospitalists were seeking or, or the potentially seeking organizations that were actually, you know, there was a lot of moral injury because of the inequities, particularly that resulted during the height of the COVID pandemic. And so hospitalists were like, well, like things are bad enough. If there's anything that we can do that doesn't add to that burden, that's fine. And so when we identified, look, it's an MDR, you're doing them anyway, or you should be. So here, here's 10 minutes out of your day. And if we do this right, and then we've shared the data back with our team and said, if you do this right, look how dramatically the outcomes change. And everybody was like, 
oh, well, I can do that. Like <laughs> that, that I can, you know, that that's part of my regular day. You're just asking me to ask an additional question and you're holding the rest of the team accountable. And so um, honestly, we've had more challenges getting our hospital partners to adopt <laughs> it than our own people. Our own people keep pushing it in the hospitals. You know, we, we work with a lot of different health systems and some are like, well, we have our way. And we're like, but our way works. Um, so, so yeah, uh, that, that's where we've been with the buy-in. That's great. Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to ask one other question. It's semi-related, but more. But you you do a lot of writing, and one of the things that you are, you know, you you're again, you, you're an English major that was focused on that, and you're still doing a lot of poetry and writing. Like, tell us, how do you manage to continue to do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the short answer is. Um... Not particularly well, at least not by my own estimation. It's funny, I was just having this conversation with my sister-in-law like yesterday, because I've written this thing recently. Um, but it was lucky, I was lucky enough to get published and I've sort of been circulating it around. It was about it was something that I've been sort of thinking about for a while, which is the uh, incursion perhaps of behavioral economics or behavioral strategies. Um, into the practice of medicine, into the art of healing, and kind of the philosophical underpinnings of that. And it was kind of an extended kind of critique or meditation on that. And, you know, I spent a lot of time on this piece. I did, you know, a fair amount of, you can call it research, like reading scholarly articles and trying to, you know, come up with a cogent argument. Wrote this thing and rewrote it. And I'm a very, like, self-critical writer, as I think a lot of people are. And, you know, as soon as I read something, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. And I scratch it out and start over. But finally, I finished it and got it to a place where I was like, at least somewhat happy with it and got it published. And um, it was great. Um, and it's nice to see your work like out in the world. But I was chatting with my sister-in-law and she was like, so, you know, like, what are you writing next? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, writing is a hobby and I enjoy it. And, it, I, you know, it, it's something that I want to keep doing, but I um, it's really hard. You know, um, and I feel like as far as hobbies go, I feel like I ought to pick up at least maybe another one that's a little less taxing and a little more fun, like pickleball or something like that. <laughs> but then I'm like, you know, what's the alternative? Because I have these ideas. I think I think about things in an interesting way and I I don't want them to just remain in my head. I want them to sort of be on paper in some tangible form out in the world. And so the short answer to your question is. I find moments, you know, in between patients, like on rounds, if I have an idea that comes to me, I'll jot it down in my phone. And then maybe at night after the kids go to bed, I'll try and put some stuff down on paper. And I don't anticipate that changing. So I'll, I'll try and keep doing it. And, you know, maybe the New Yorker will come calling at some point. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm all for it. I think you're, it's incredibly, I, I do actually think it's incredibly brave to, to get it together and do that. I, I like many others, am an, an aspiring writer, and then I sit down in front of my um, computer or even in my notebook, and I start writing it, and I was like, nobody else should read this. <laughs> so. I think you've already got the most important part of being a writer down, which is... Uh immediately hating everything you've written as soon as you put it down well, on paper. I think that's, a... <laughs> that's, that's for sure. That's for sure. Well, um, be before we start wrapping up, because I did want to make sure that we stay committed to our time, we always have, a, he, he calls himself our man on the street and, and our man of the people. And so uh, I always want to make sure that Jay gets his questions in there because he always has some fantastic ones. Well, I'm really, I call myself man on the street just because I'm I'm the only one with no clinical background on these calls. So, so that, that's what I bring to the table. Um, but I guess what I did want to ask you is I'm just so fascinated by your journey and really just how you even kind of became really moved into, into the DEI space. Just, you know, when you're talking about New York and, and seeing the, the protests and everything and how that moved you. And I feel like a lot of the people I meet and a lot of the stories that I hear, you know, a lot of people, they, they're set in their ways and and now they kind of come with a filter of just kind of proving themselves true. They interpret the facts to back it up. Um, and you know, you're coming from a place kind of the opposite. You you saw these things and it moved you to to learn more and grow in those in, in that direction. I guess I just kind of wonder what 
I don't know if it's advice or whether it's just sharing a little more of your story or if it is advice to to tell people like maybe how to to kind of move in, the, in that way of awareness. You know, I don't know if it's growth mindset or if it's like heart posture, whatever language you use, but kind of expanding a little bit on that. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a tendency maybe among, I don't know if it's doctors especially, or perhaps as people get older, professionals of any kind, they kind of get set in their ways and they tend to, and it's not like I'm immune to this, but there is a tendency to sort of just accept you know, received wisdom or dogma or orthodoxy in whatever way you want to frame it. And so even if I think back to like when I was living in New York, you know, and this was like 2011 or so, and seeing these things and, you know, uh, seeing this sort of outpouring of emotion um, at this sort of brazen, you know, act of violence that sadly we've come to see repeated like so many times since then. But if I think back to even who I was at that time, I feel like I've changed. And that is, I think, the consequence of just always questioning things, you know, um, you know, there's no kind of system of thought or um, set of rules, I think, that is beyond that sort of thoughtful interrogation. And I, I really do believe that. And that extends to, you know, things that I think people take for granted in some ways, like what are the causes, the underlying causes of racially disparate outcomes in police killing, you know? I think if you would ask me as like a 20-some-odd-year-old living in New York City when I was standing there in Union Square and people were yelling and I was very much like taken by kind of the emotion uh, of that particular instance, my answer at that point would have been different from perhaps my answer now. Um, and I think that's just a consequence of constantly refining my own kind of preconceived notions and reading and thinking critically about these things, which kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier, which is to say explanations like structural racism or systemic racism, it's not enough to simply throw out that term and sort of have that be it. You have to kind of, un, you know, uncover what that, that term actually means and how it shows up. Um, and I think once you start thinking about things that way, which is like, just trying to refine concepts, seek conceptual clarity, enable to the extent that you can, what are the sort of logical causal connections in the world that might result in someone like Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, or George Floyd being killed indiscriminately, cruelly, you know, wantonly, you know, as a consequence of state violence. Um, the answers become pretty complex. Um, but they also start to, I think, coalesce and they start to start to make sense in terms of other things that we see, certainly as doctors, in terms of health and disease. And that's not something I ever want to lose, you know, is just sort of thinking about things and trying to, if there are, if you do subscribe to the notion that like society has a structure and there are underlying mechanisms as to like why things happen, that's really what motivates me is like just wanting to know why, you know? And I think perhaps um, where most physicians might stop is understanding why causal, you know, or what the causal mechanisms are solely when it comes to disease, like in the body, because that's how we're trained. I think, you know, what I would hope is that more folks might try and understand those causal mechanisms more broadly um, at the level of something like society political economy, you know, what do we mean when we talk about race and racial disparity? Those are things that I continue to think about. And to answer your, one of your questions earlier, Greg, I mean, in thinking about them, one way that I can clarify my own thoughts is by writing about them. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So that's another kind of thing that I, I hope to um, only continue doing. Fabulous. Well, Akshay, uh, we are closing in on our time, but the discipline that Jay absolutely has instilled in me is ensuring that uh, I ask you one more question, which is, what's a topic that you think that we should explore um, or uh, a, a potential guest that you would recommend us bringing on? And um, can you help us get them on? I... <laughs> <laughs> um, I... In terms of a topic, something I was just reading about today was this issue of 
which I'm sure you're familiar with, of like quality measurement in health, you know, um, especially surrounding things like what it means to measure quality, how we do it, how does the act of measuring and reporting quality help or in some ways harm? There's that concept of iatrogenesis again. Um, right. Patients, especially patients from vulnerable communities or marginalized communities. Um, that's just something I was reading about. It, it, it's a big topic in cardiology due to things like, you know, heart failure readmissions, acute MI readmissions, um, through the hospital readmissions reduction program. And there's like a very active vociferous debate related to it. But I think broadly, it, it speaks to like uh, some interesting questions. A lot to think about who you might have on your podcast about what you might talk about this in an interesting way. Um, so I'll get back to you. But I'm sure you guys have like a chief quality officer or something at sound positions. And that might be a great place to start. I'm always interested in how institutions and organizations in healthcare think about quality, because it's on the one hand, again, on like a surface level, it's like a very simple thing. Oh, quality equals this done. When you start to like think about it deeper, you're like, wait a minute, how are we actually measuring this? Are we actually measuring what we're purporting to measure? Is what we're purporting to measure actually translating to anything tangible? Right. God, are we actually hurting people here? Like, those are really interesting questions. <laughs> oh, they're, no, they're fabulous questions and ones that we uh, certainly as an organization have to ask. And um, because at the end of the day, again, we see ourselves as a, as, as a medical group and at, at the end of the day, anything that we're measuring has to be relevant first to patients, <laughs> like actually to patients, like, do I care about this? And then the second is, can it be relevant to a, a physician in a way that is meaningfully attributable to them? Because uh, as you, I, I, as part of that dialogue, right, attribution is the hair set on fire uh, concept for all physicians, because they're like, that's not me. And we have everybody or a lot of other institutions going, that is absolutely who you are um so it's a it's a it's a good call out and uh, i will absolutely consider that Akshay, thank you so much for your time uh your energy uh and for um your writing uh it's it's been great and uh to to listen to you and don't be surprised if i ask to have you back on because i think you opened up at least three other topics that i'm mulling around on our full podcast so um thank you and uh um for our listeners uh see you next uh episode see you thanks greg thanks jack Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a Sound Physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.